0: So, Mark, Yes. until he took an unfortunate second half of the movie turn into bigotry, I was really taken by the character of Ralph in this movie, who works at a diner and frequently hides pies that he makes so he doesn't have
1: to sell them and could just eat them himself. Now, that move, I respect. Everything else about that character, less so. Right. When that was the only thing we had seen him
0: do, I was like, that guy's my date. But then he did more things in the movie, and I was like, never mind. That is a a good take. Now, I bring him up because, I don't know about you, but I thought those pies looked pretty good. And I was wondering, what is your favorite dessert that somebody has in a movie?
1: Have you seen Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette? I have not, but this seems like a good choice. Because the desserts in that movie, in a film about the, you know over-the-top luxury and inequalities of France on the eve of the French Revolution. The use of desserts is really well executed.
0: Yeah, that seems fitting. You know, you've got to have cake if you're going to let them eat it.
1: Yeah. I mean, they are just, like, so over-the-top and delicious looking. I haven't eaten them. I wish. Ugh. It was one of those movies where you watch it, like, there's a scene where she's just surrounded by cakes. Just, like, on all sides. Sounds great. It looks incredible. Granted, it represents everything wrong with (laughs) that era and the inequalities that existed. But still, I want to eat all of them. So, cake actually is fitting
0: because what I thought of was the Danny DeVito film, Matilda. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Famously starring and centered on Danny DeVito. He directed it. Oh, oh my god, I forgot. And he's the narrator. Like, Danny DeVito is all over that movie. Oh,
0: I only remember him as the dad. Right, yes, of course, he plays Mr. Wormwood, but he's also the narrator, and he directed it. I had no idea he directed that movie. Well, in that movie, Bruce Bogtrotter is being punished by the Trunchbull for being fat, I think? And he is made to eat this enormous chocolate cake in one sitting at a school assembly,
1: and that cake looks pretty good. I think it's because he took a bite out of the cake. Oh, that's right. And his punishment is to finish it. I recently saw Matilda the musical on stage, and so I remember the story from that. I don't remember much about the movie, but the musical was pretty good. And I felt very intimidated by those children that learned so many words because it is a musical about a little girl that likes to read and thus her lines were long and included many complicated words and she was like
0: 10. I have never seen the musical. I saw the movie many times because when I was in elementary and middle school, my mom worked at the same school that I went to and so after the school day ended, I would just like hang out in her classroom Until we went home, and the previous teacher had left, like, three VHS tapes in the room that we just watched all the time. And one of them was Matilda. One of them was the 90s Dennis the Menace adaptation. Oh, God, I remember that. Yeah, it's a weird movie. Yeah. There's a third one. I don't know what it is. But actually, a couple of years ago... My mom moved to a different school, and I get maybe he helped her move or something. My uncle got his hands on the Matilda VHS and then gave it to me for Christmas. So I had to figure out what to do with this <laughs> VHS tape of the 1996 Danny DeVito-directed film Matilda.
1: What did you do with that? Who has a VHS anymore? I probably
0: left it in my parents' house somewhere.
1: Hmm. It's probably still there.
0: Yeah. I mean, it could be. Although my mom's been doing a lot of cleaning since self-quarantine started.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, if I found a VHS, that would be the first thing I got rid of.
0: Because, like, what are you going to I mean, they're, like, very clunky curiosities at this point.
1: I know. It's You do it more as a joke at this point. It's just like, what, what, you, where are you going to get a VCR? eBay? For more money than they're worth? Let's take a look is this going to be like you when you wanted to buy a laser disc player? No, because
0: there was at least something novel about a laser disc player whereas like a VCR I just know will disappoint me. Um I'm seeing a listing on eBay. You can get them for like 30, 40 bucks. On Amazon, you can only get them for like over 100. Yeah, cuz they're selling like specialty products that still exist or else lunatics in the marketplace. Whereas, like, eBay is just, like, a guy who's looking to unload their VCR. How do you know it still works? Well, many of these say that they have been tested and still work. The real trick is getting one with an attachment that will go into a modern TV. Actually,
1: I think a surprising number of TVs still have the, like, red, yellow, white import. I don't know what those are called. Nope, me neither. I just call them the red, yellow, white ones. And then there was that middle stage when they introduced two new colors before HDMI. Oh, you're right. I forgot about that. What a world. And we are equipped to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, because I clearly am well versed in early 2000s TV technology. Well, speaking of antiquated technology, I guess we could talk about this movie set in the late 60s where... They didn't have TVs that had those ports at all, I'm guessing.
0: Actually, it's an interesting thing about the technology because I think there are a couple of places in this movie where we are intended to read into social class through things. Like the fact that the murdered man, whose name is escaping me at the moment. Colbert. That Colbert has a convertible
1: with an electric
0: top. It feels like that is a new technology being showed off to indicate just
1: how wealthy this guy is. And he's from Chicago, so you know he's full of money. Of course. But... We can get into all this and more once we start the show. After one of my clunkiest segues, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark
0: and I'm Gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast dedicated to exploring one of the most important, unimportant questions of our day. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are finishing up our look at the Best Picture nominees of 1967 with a look at the winner, Norman Jewison's
1: In the Heat of the Night. In the heat of the night. Now, I didn't realize this once I had started the movie, but this man directed Moonstruck and yeah. this movie and I love him and Fiddler on the Roof. What a guy. Yeah, he's also a very cute old man. He's still alive. And
0: I watched the Criterion Collection Blu-ray, and there are some really nice interviews with him.
1: This movie was much more of just like a hard-boiled detective film that I was expecting. Like, there was a lot of other stuff happening, but it was really just a murder mystery at the root of it. I didn't know anything about it going in. Yeah, it is primarily a murder mystery.
0: That's what it's mostly concerned
1: with as it's
0: going through and it has this racial animosity current running through it. But the plot is driven by like, all right, who did the murder? Which is what you could tell if you saw the poster, which had the gripping tagline. They got a murder on their hands. They don't know what to do with it. Solve it. Which is a quote from the movie. That's when Poitiers is on the phone and he's explaining why he's working
1: the case. Oh, right.
0: <laughs> but it's still a bad <laughs> tagline. When you see
1: that tagline, you're just like, I think they know what to do. They solve it. Otherwise, the movie wouldn't have a, a, a thing. The marketing for this movie was terrible. It did well,
0: anyway, so that's a good thing. But a bunch of the ads just focused on the, like, one shot of Dolores walking around naked, where they, like, tried to make it seem like a sexy movie. And also, United Artists, which is the studio that produced it, kept trying to find, like, corporate sponsorship deals and worked really hard to set up deals with places that sold air conditioners. Like, buy an air conditioner to save you from the heat of the night!
1: Yikes. Absolute yikes. It's for the art, Mark! The buffoonery. I mean, watching this movie made me really appreciate the air conditioner I have running in my room. This is a very sweaty movie. Yes. Huh. It does take place mostly in the heat of the night, doesn't it? What a fitting title. It does. And sometimes in the heat of the day. Yeah, it's hot here, and I just ran this afternoon, and I was sweatier than everyone else in this movie. So coming in and watching this, I was like, I don't need to remember this kind of heat. Guess I should have expected it. It's in the title. It was in the title.
0: They promised it to you. Yeah. Um. It is worth noting, this movie is based on a novel from 1965 by John Ball, which is similar, but not identical. For starters, the novel is set in South Carolina, and Tibbs is an officer in Pasadena, whereas the shift to... Setting it in Mississippi and having him be from Philadelphia, among other things, sets up a much cleaner North versus South dynamic.
1: Pasadena, California? Yeah. Okay.
0: And the movie got two sequels, and in those, Tibbs is based out of San Francisco.
1: I think Philadelphia fits the character well as he's portrayed in this movie.
0: Yeah. This is a really interesting Sidney Poitier performance.
1: It is. It's definitely his most flawed of the ones I've seen. I'd say.
0: Right. And of course, this is a big year for him where this is one of three movies that comes out along with Guess Who's Coming to Dinner where the movie deliberately makes him like the perfect man so that the only objection Spencer Tracy can have is his race. And then the other one is a British movie called To Sir With Love where he plays an engineer who moves to Britain and while he's waiting for his job to get finalized, he has to teach inner city white kids. So like this is the one where he is able to get kind of down and dirty
1: in guess who's coming to dinner it's the most justified because they have to narrow it down to that one point to avoid him being able to justify it any other way but i really enjoyed seeing him in the more gritty role where his character has like major problems and is justifiably angry and everything
0: right the fact that he gets to be angry is pretty exciting and then there are the other factors in it too where you know he sometimes makes incorrect assumptions. Like, he assumes that Endicott
1: is behind the murder, in part because he wants to be able to arrest Endicott. Right. And he eventually admits that, which I also liked, that it shows, like, you know, we all have motivations. Endicott was terrible, would have loved to seen him go down, but, you know, sadly, that's not how it played out. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's also kind of interesting, the fact that He's, like, kind of cool. And Sidney Poitier is always classy, but in this one, he gets to walk out the door and talk about how he's headed where Whitey can't go. Like, there's a status difference where, like, he is clearly, like, higher class than a lot of the people in Sparta, which adds to the conflict there. He's always walking around in these nice suits, but he's also cooler than a lot of them.
1: Yeah, that's what I liked about him being from Philadelphia is they could really justify him speaking I love when he says baby to people and just little moments like that where it's like his true personality kind of comes out. I loved when he said we're going where whitey can't go. It's awesome. And the sheriff was so offended. But like
0: even the fact that when the racist white dudes chase him down and are going to beat him up in that warehouse... A lot of other Sidney Poitier movies would not have him pick up the bar and be ready to fight them back.
1: Right. He doesn't just kind of give a speech and they back off or accept it with class. He's like, got that pull and knows how to use it. It's like, you want it? Come and take it. It was very fun to see.
0: Yeah.
1: I really liked this movie.
0: Yeah, it's a good movie. And I think there's a lot to appreciate about it. Like I said, I think it's a good Sidney Poitier performance. Rod Steiger is fantastic in it Mm -hmm. as Chief Gillespie. Who's an interesting figure in his own right, because especially given his appearance and Rod Steiger gained a ton of weight for this role. In 1967, there's all the associations of racist, violent police chiefs like Bull Connor in Alabama. But Gillespie is weird because he is his own weird
1: kind of outcast
0: in this town where nobody really likes him
1: either. Right. I think his outsider status makes it kind of more believable in how he treats um. What's Sidney Poitier's character's name? Tibbs. They call him Mr. Tibbs! They call him Mr. Tibbs. (laughs) (laughs) Makes it more believable in how he treats Tibbs because everyone also kind of hates him too. But he's also a terrible person in many ways. Right. And he is racist and he ends the movie racist. Yes. But
0: he is a more interesting character because you see that, like, the leadership in the town doesn't really like him. The other officers don't really like him. No one respects him. (laughs) Right. They're all just like, why won't you stop.
1: Yeah, because even the widow of the murdered man wants Tibbs on the case because she doesn't trust the chief.
0: Well, she shouldn't trust the chief in that case.
1: It is true. He gets everything wrong. Yeah, Gillespie is wrong and wants to ignore evidence that he is wrong. The police work in this movie is so bad. It's, like, worse than most other movies about bad police work.
0: Yes, but I think, on the one hand, there are a lot of movies with bad police work that is presented as good police
1: work. (laughs) That is also true. This movie is presenting bad police work as bad police work. Like, think about Dial M for Murder. (laughs) Oh my god, he's the worst cop! He's so bad!
0: Right, whereas, like, Gillespie's badness is called out, and interestingly, he is aware of the low quality of police work in his own department.
1: I mean, it's really interesting that he respects Tibbs because it comes also from knowing how bad his own police department is, I think. Right. I did like that this movie did not cure Ra- like, it didn't end with racism being cured because movies like Green Book, where it's like, everything's all better. It's like, no, it's- it's not. This did not cure racism. And this movie's like, everyone's still trash- And Gillespie is still very racist at the end, but sees this man as, like, a one exception that he can kind of respect.
0: James Baldwin, in his book of film criticism, referred to the handshake at the end of this movie as being, like, a fade-out kiss in a Golden Age Hollywood movie. (laughs) Ugh,
1: I should read that. That sounds like a very good book. That's a great line. It is pretty awesome.
0: It is worth noting that originally there was a lot more like, institutional racism depicted in this movie. Like, there were scenes of Tibbs having to wait outside the White's Only Hotel, but Norman Jewison and Starling Siliphant, who wrote the screenplay and has an amazing name, and it's worth noting City Poitier also had a lot of input on the screenplay, they worked to jettison a lot of that stuff because they wanted to focus more on the murder mystery and on the relationship between Tibbs and Gillespie. They didn't really want it to be about, like, the whole town.
1: And we all know.
0: Right, that was <laughs> the thing they said, too. They were like, The audience will get it. You don't need to make it like explicitly like this is a movie about race.
1: Right. Everyone is aware that the Jim Crow laws are still basically in effect.
0: Right. This comes out in the summer of 1967 in like August after a summer of riots throughout the country, particularly Detroit had some pretty severe riots that summer. And the memory of the marches in Alabama, the memory of freedom summer is still pretty darn strong. I mean, it's hard to watch guys with Confederate flag license plates chase Sidney Poitier through the streets without thinking about the Freedom Summer volunteers who were murdered by the side of the road.
1: It's also just painful to watch all of the like people having to pick cotton still and showing like it is not Things have not changed that much.
0: Yeah. That sequence with the cotton field is one of the only parts that is filmed actually in the South. Originally, they were going to have to shoot the whole movie on lots. And Norman Jewison really didn't want to do it. But his previous movie, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, which is a comedy about a Soviet submarine that accidentally runs aground in New England, (laughs) had gotten nominated for Best Picture and was like a massive hit. So then United Artists was willing to give him the money to shoot on location. And Poitier would not shoot in the South. Because earlier, he and Harry Belafonte, who was a good friend of his, had gone on a tour through the South to raise support for the Civil Rights Movement, and they had been chased and harassed by Klansmen. And so Poitier's like, I'm not doing any of that. So they shot in southern Illinois, in the city of Sparta. It was originally called something else, and they changed it to Sparta so that they could save money by not having to repaint signs.
1: Incredible.
0: But for the cotton field and for Endicott's plantation They had to go into Tennessee, which was this like terrifying process in a lot of ways where there was nothing super serious, but there were people on the fringes of the production who were pretty freaky. Sidney Poitier slept with a gun in his hotel room. There was one night when like some pickup truck was making the rounds of the parking lot. Somebody was banging on doors. It turned out it was a guy who was looking for his wife, which is its own bag of worms. But Norman Jewison tells a story about how he figured out what was going on and called up Sidney Poitier and said, like, hey... You're okay, but don't answer the door. And Poitier was like, anybody comes in that door, I'm blowing their head off.
1: Yeah, that scene definitely need like, it works because of the reality of it and the bleakness
0: of it. It sets up where this town is and where different groups fit in. And it also reinforces Virgil Tibbs's outsider status.
1: And it also really drives home why people would not like Colbert, because his factory will upset the entire social fabric of the town. Right. He's promising that
0: the factory he's going to build will employ fifty percent black people and folks like Endicott who are effectively like you know those people working on his plantation are probably sharecroppers.
1: Right. He's basically they would still have another s- opportunity slave master, but these people would then get a chance to escape that life and make a real living for themselves. The scene with Endicott is truly fascinating. It's so good. It's so good. And it got is played by Larry Gates, who was a New York
0: theater actor. Primarily, this movie employed a lot of theater actors because it had such a small budget. He's really good and creepy and menacing without being explicitly
1: so. Because he's so polite.
0: Right, and he's very polite to Tibbs, too, where he, you know, welcomes him in, offers him the drink. I love that after Gillespie refuses, Tibbs accepts it as a way of, like, asserting, no, I am here, I am an equal, I will have this drink.
1: Right. It makes a lot of sense, and Endicott is so polite about it. But then he's describing that orchid,
0: and, like, all of his white supremacy comes out.
1: Yeah, that was, oh, painful to watch, when he's just like, yes, this orchid Needs a lot of care. It's just like the Negro, and you're just like, oh god, we're going there. The scene where then Endicott gets mad
0: at Tibbs and slaps him, and Tibbs slaps him back, was like a major
1: discussion point around this movie when it came out. It was massive. I can imagine. I mean, everyone is basically like, Tibbs should not have survived that. Right, and the the mayor says that to Gillespie
0: when he's like, our last chief would have shot him immediately.
1: I... Read online that they could tell the New York theater was integrated because of the difference in reaction between the white audience who all kind of gasped and went oh, and the black audience that were cheering for him. Yeah, it this. was like uh,
0: people got really hyped for that moment, particularly in in black audiences. I mean, I
1: felt it. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. but it's
0: also like, holy crap! But yeah, you're also because terrified. One of those moments where you're like, this could go terribly, terribly wrong. The movie, and again, I think this is where it succeeds in not being so pointedly like a race movie is it just counts on you to understand that like for example when Tibbs is holding on to Dolores when the lynch mob arrives you know how much worse this situation has become
1: I really think this movie respects its audience's intelligence in its way of letting you know like you understand what's happening in the south at the time they don't need to make it so explicit And it makes it almost more powerful to not have it happen.
0: Yeah. It's also like a really well-made movie. It made me think of some of the recent Steven Spielberg historical dramas, like Bridge of Spies and The Post, where you watch it and you're just like, this thing is incredibly Mm well-crafted. Like the pieces of it are fitting together to tell a story incredibly well. Uh, The movie's shot by Haskell Wexler, who is a cinematographer we've talked about before because he filmed Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Which means he basically taught Mike Nichols how to make movies. And this was his first time ever shooting a film in color. Wow. And
1: it looks great. The color of this movie and the scenery and all that is really cool. The scene where Gillespie is walking down the length of the train station is so well shot.
0: Yeah. Wexler is always fun because... You can see this in Virginia Woolf too, but this one it stands out even more because he's using color. The ways that he is willing to use stylized lighting to create mood, even if it wouldn't literally be lit that way if you were to like walk into that part of the world. And when you contrast that to the color movies of the 1950s, where it's like everything is brightly lit all the time in something like Dial M for Murder, this movie's got some style to it.
1: Right. I loved how cloudy it was when they were driving through the cotton field. Like, it is dreary. It's also worth noting that this was
0: the first major release that was specifically lit to make black people look good on screen. It's depressing how stuff like that still isn't the norm. Right. And it's the kind of thing where you look at and you're like, yeah, Poitier looks incredible. He's photographed incredibly well in this movie.
1: He is. And I mean, we're recording this not that long after the comparison between the Annie Leibovitz cover for, which one does she shoot for? Vogue of Simone Biles to the Vanity Fair cover of Viola Davis that is shot by another black person and just the lighting, the contrast between them makes it so apparent, like how you have to adapt your light. photographed to the subject yeah, to the subject and just assuming it will work the same is incredibly racist and you have to do it in a way that makes the person look good
0: and it can be done and haskell wexler shooting in color for the first time was able to do it (laughs) i know
1: in the 60s my goodness
0: all of the stories that i read about him shooting the movie are wonderful like in the sequence when they're chasing harvey the first guy that they think is the murderer And the camera's, like, zipping through the trees, chasing after him. They built, like, a platform out of two-by-fours. And Haskell Wexler is sitting on it, holding the camera, while crew members, like, ran through the trees, holding him up. And he had to, like, duck under branches so that he wouldn't get hit while he was shooting it. That's so cool. And then, of course, at the end of that sequence, Harvey runs across the train tracks and is able to get a lead on them because they can't go past the train. Again, I keep saying this movie didn't have a large budget. They couldn't rent a train, so they had to hang out near the train tracks until they heard a train coming and then have him run and hope he didn't get too far before he got blocked out by the train. Oh my god, that's... It's,
1: it makes it just so much
0: better to think about that. It's absurd. And so I read that before I saw the movie. So I was watching. It, I was like, wow, there sure is a train right there.
1: I mean, the other thing is they made the name of the town Sparta, which I kind of thought was tied to the fact that Sparta is like famously a town where the slaves outnumbered the masters and had many revolts.
0: But no. It's nope. It was so they wouldn't have to paint they the water tower. Have to
1: paint the signs. Oh, my God. And I mean, it still works. Like yeah obviously like the intent doesn't change the meaning of it but it is still funny that (laughs) that i thought that there was like more meaning to that than there ended up being which is part of
0: the fun of it too yeah we can make our own connections draw our own conclusions
1: you know i love it um the music in this movie though Quincy quincy jones crushing it the music is so good it's really cool I mean, it's always great when a movie starts with a train
0: because I love trains.
1: It's always great when a movie starts with Ray Charles just saying the name of the movie. In the key of that is how the movie, like, talk about a title drop. <laughs> it's just. It's the first, it's spoken, the words. first spoken words or
0: the name of the movie. Sung by Ray Charles in a song by Quincy Jones. Oh, it's so good. The music in this movie rules. It's got this like, blues-style running through it. This is one of the first major Hollywood movies to use blues as its
1: primary soundtrack, and it sounds awesome. I mean, it's like, what else could they use? (laughs) Like, that music really sets the mood so well. There's a good
0: documentary on the Criterion Blu-ray about the music of this movie, where they talk about the fact that a lot of movies, even ones set in the South, even ones set in the South focusing on Black people, would just use, like traditional, like, classical style music scores. And that one of the good things about this movie that makes it work so well is that it doesn't do that. It uses music that would fit with the people and the place and it gives it this cool sort of passionate sound to it
1: but it's also clearly reinterpreted to add the elements of like the north that he brings in because it's not just straight you know southern blues like banjos and stuff there's definitely an electric feel to it too like the very beginning of the movie is telling us virgil tibbs
0: is not from here he is coming off the train he is bringing himself and he's kind of bringing this music yes he is very much not from there one of the cool things, too, is that Norman Jewison and Quincy Jones decided they didn't want any popular music in the movie because they didn't want to distract the audience by having them recognize a song. So every song that somebody listens to, like when Ralph puts one on in the jukebox or when Officer Wood is driving around with the radio, all of those are original songs that Quincy Jones wrote for the movie.
1: I love that. I also love that they did that and like they had Quincy Jones write original music and they couldn't rent a train because they... Didn't want to pay for the rights to songs, too, maybe. Well, Quincy Jones isn't famous, then. I know. He's only been making scores for, like, two or three years. No, that's what I mean, is, like, they didn't go out and pay for the rights to popular music. They just had Quincy Jones do it, because they had already brought him on. Incredible. Now, of course, we are doing this movie because
0: it is one of the five movies nominated for Best Picture in 1967. Like I said, I watched all these Criterion special features, and they talked about how *In the Heat of the Night* was nominated and won Best Picture against *The Graduate*, *Bonnie and Clyde*, and *Guess Who's Coming to Dinner*. Literally, the featurette I watched did not mention *Doctor (laughs) Doolittle*. It had a graphic with a list, and *Doctor Doolittle* was not included on the list. That's incredible and well deserved. The right choice. It also won Best Actor for Rod Steiger for his performance as Chief Gillespie. Worth remembering that Sidney Poitier was nominated that year for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. And it got nominations for Director for Norman Jewison and for Sound Editing. It's just insane that Dr. Doolittle was nominated. Look, Fox offers you a free dinner and bottomless champagne to like hang out while a movie plays on the lot. All you got to do is vote for it.
1: It's insane that that movie was nominated. It's so bad.
0: It's quite bad. Oh my God. So I'm actually curious now, what is your ranking of the 1967 Best Picture nominees?
1: It's interesting. Dr. Dolittle number one, clearly. Um, no, that's tough. I think of the four, they're all really good. I think Bonnie and Clyde might be number four. Okay. I think maybe then The Graduate... In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner might be my list. So, you're saying like, Bonnie for, and Clyde would be would your the, top. the last. I was going from bottom to top. Okay, go top to bottom. Top to bottom, yeah. So, I think it might be Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde.
0: Inter- okay, we are, like, kind of inverted a bit. Because I think, for me, I'm Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, but I like them all.
1: I mean, it's ranking four of the best movies I've seen. Like, they're all so good.
0: It is worth noting that this Oscars, as we are looking towards an Oscars ceremony that has been delayed in our own time, this Oscar ceremony was delayed two days because it happened right around the assassination of Martin Luther King, and so they delayed it two days so that people could attend the funeral. I mean, yeah, yeah, kind of have to. Right. It was the kind of thing where there was pretty much a threat to boycott it if they didn't delay. I would have. And like, right, because... If you don't delay it, how is Sammy Davis Jr. going to perform Talk to the Animals at the Oscars? Oh my god, I can't believe that happened. From his album where he covered every song in Dr. Doolittle, because remember, he was almost in the movie until he was cut and replaced with Sidney Poitier until that role was shrunk to the point that they got rid of him.
1: Oh my god. I mean, get that- He co- was almost in
0: three of these. Get
1: that coin, but still. My god. That movie. William Shakespeare the 10th. Oh, boy. Should we get into the romance of this movie, though?
0: Let's do it. Obviously, the romance does not involve any of the
1: lead characters. Yeah, it is much more tied to um, violence and murder and statutory rape than romance. Yeah, that is true. But let's get into it. All right.
0: So, of course, In the Heat of the Night is a murder mystery. Virgil Tibbs, played by Sidney Poitier, is a Philadelphia police detective who has gone to Mississippi to visit his mother. And he's on his way back, and he's waiting at the train station at night when Mr. Colbert, a wealthy industrialist transplant from Chicago, is found murdered, and Tibbs is arrested because he is an unknown black person and therefore a suspect.
1: I mean, to them, he's not even, like, a suspect. He did. (laughs) He did it. Officer Wood's just like, oh, there's a black man in town that I don't know? He is a murderer.
0: Right. And Tibbs is able to get off in part because of his status. He gets... Chief Gillespie to call up the Philadelphia Police Department and confirm that Tibbs is a homicide detective. His chief then tells him, stick around, help him solve the murder.
1: I think it's interesting that he doesn't pull his badge at the train station with Officer Wood. Because if I was in that situation, I probably would have tried to be like, you know, I am a police officer earlier than he does it.
0: On the other hand, I mean, the difference in doing it at the police station versus the train station is that at the police station, there are other witnesses to what goes on.
1: That's also true.
0: And it's like a pretty big risk when he's already in a place where he does not feel safe in Sparta, Mississippi to then, in a way, assert equality or even a
1: higher status over this white police officer. That does make a lot of sense. And it also makes sense for him to do it with the chief, because the chief is probably more likely to be able then to contact Philadelphia. Right. And he has the good fortune that Gillespie has this
0: power struggle in his own department and in his own town, where he stands to gain from pushing back against other people who want to write off tibs. Right. He
1: is just using this to kind of assert his own authority in a way, too, because he does Look, not have... Jerry it. won't fix the gate. Oh my god, that f***ing gate.
0: <laughs> is his name actually Jerry, or did I just get that in my head because he looks like Jim O'Hare?
1: I think his name is not Jerry. What is his name? Isn't it like... It's Courtney. Yep, that's him, Courtney. I was thinking, I was like, it's not a traditionally male name these days. So I was like, Stacy? But yes, Courtney and his brother, whose name I also don't remember. Well, his brother's never on screen. Yeah. I legit thought the brother was fake for a second. I also
0: wondered if the brother was fake when the chief tells him, I thought I told you to fix that. And he's like, no, you must have told my brother. He's on the day shift. That feels like an episode of the Heat of the Night TV show. There's a TV show? Yeah, it ran for like seven years in the 80s and 90s. So this movie got two sequels. One is just titled They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. Hey, if it works, cash in on it. The other one's called like The Organization or something. The first one, the first sequel was pretty well received. The second one, not so much. And then there's a TV series from 1988 to 1995 on first NBC and then CBS, that starred Carol O'Connor, Archie Bunker himself, as Chief Gillespie.
1: I'm guessing if they recast that role, Sydney Poitier is also then not in it.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, again, this is 20 years later. Tibbs is played by Howard Rollins for all but the final season because he got fired for repeated charges for drug and alcohol-related crimes, including like DUI and stuff. So then for the final season, they had Chief Gillespie be forced out of office because of a storyline that had been building for a couple of years where he went public with his relationship with a black city councilwoman. So then racist people in town forced him out of the chiefship and to get the black-white dynamic, Carl Weathers plays a new chief in the final season. Wow. That
1: sounds insane. Hey,
0: TV, man. You always got to come up with a new story.
1: You got to roll with the punches as they come.
0: That's the thing that I like about TV is that like, especially like long form episodic television. Is like, look, you just got to keep coming up with stories. I'm always impressed by soap operas. People make fun of them, but like, they ran for 50 years.
1: They kept coming up with stuff. I mean, the reason people make fun of them is because women like them. That's the real reason. It is impressive. When you are the same show for that long, you're going to bring on twins. It's just going to happen, and it needs to happen, and it's fun. It should
0: happen. It's great. You can't criticize secret twins
1: and like the parent trap. The problem with soap operas for me is I'm curious, but it is way too big of a commitment to think about getting into. Well, you don't watch it from the beginning. You just start watching and you figure it out. The way
0: people used to watch TV.
1: I just can't imagine being like, now is the time to get into soap operas.
0: I keep planning on doing it. I keep saying like, next summer, I'm going to pick one
1: and just do it. And frankly, this summer would have been the one to do it. And I haven't, so I don't know. It's kind of tough to just do anything except... Rewatch old sitcoms for me. i just been watching movies all the time. It's like, I got two hours? All right. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of Golden
0: Girls and Mary Tyler Moore show. It's a very comforting world. We've been more on the Carol Burnett side of things. A lot of sketch comedy happening. Peacock has these, like, channels where it'll just, like, play a loop of something. So we've been watching a lot of the SNL channel where it just plays SNL sketches back to back to back, shuffled from different years. The other night, it was just a block of Dana Carvey sketches.
1: So you have used Peacock? I have used Peacock. I have it. I should try it. It's not bad.
0: It's not great, but it's not bad. Like,
1: the only thing I... I've used HBO Max to watch the new Looney Tunes they've made, and that's about it. They were fun. I only watched two, but they were much more fun than I anticipated. Yeah. Peacock's got a pretty good movie library.
0: They have, uh, like,
1: all the old Universal Monster movies. Yeah. I mean, it's included with Comcast. And I say I have Comcast, but I have my parents' password. Um, (laughs) Tomato, tomato. (laughs) Tomato, tomato. So I should just try. I should set it up. I'm also the same way I got HBO Max, and I'm the only person to use it. No one else has figured it out in my family, I think. Yeah, so there you go. All right. But in the heat of the night. In the heat of the night. Romance. Tibbs is told to help solve the case. Okay.
0: We're actually jumping back before that. Every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help us summarize what's going on. And this week, we have to start our point number one with Officer Sam Wood making his rounds through the town.
1: Hey, little lark, get out of the dark. Foul on the prowl. Cute little Jay, stay out of his way. Foul on the prowl. This is happening... He's driving around, like, right after the credits roll, because this is when the crime is found. So he leaves the diner. Where Ralph refuses to sell him pie. And does his rounds, and then he drives past the window, and there is in basically the exact same shot as in Bonnie and Clyde. I thought of that too. This is like the year of convenient windowsill placement. Yeah, there is a woman standing there, a girl, essentially. We find out she's 16. With... Just barely her nipples covered by the crossbeam on a window. She's like fully naked,
0: staring out the window, staring at wood. She like takes a drink from a bottle. I assumed it was a beer and later I found out she was 16 and it was still maybe a beer, but it could have also been a Coke. It was
1: probably a Coke because she talks about how much she wanted a soft drink. Oh, true. But yeah, so like she
0: is clearly, and we find out more, some degree of exhibitionist.
1: Yes. And then he looks, they make eye contact, and he drives away.
0: Point number two. (laughs) This cop, Sam Wood, comes charging out of the bush and hauls me
1: in. He let you go, didn't he? Told me not to mess with her no more. She lives over on 3rd about a block from me, trips around the house and all together. And after dark with the lights on, now somebody sure ought to make her stop doing that.
0: Tibbs has been arrested because he conducted an investigation into the murdered Mr. Colbert. And he has all this information, but he doesn't trust Gillespie to actually use it. And so Gillespie gets mad at him and arrests him for withholding evidence. And so Tibbs then chats with Harvey, their first suspect in the murder, because Harvey was found with Colbert's wallet.
1: Right, so he was arrested for murder, Tibbs proves he didn't do it, and now they're holding him on robbery charges. So he stays in jail. Because what actually happened was he found the dead body of Mr. Colbert and robbed it,
0: like he's playing Assassin's Creed.
1: Yeah, which is, like, apparently a crime, which no video game has ever taught me. No, video games (laughs) actively encourage me to loot dead bodies. Yeah, basically what I've learned from Assassin's Creed is if it's dead, it's fair game. That said, Assassin's
0: Creed is also teaching us to murder, and we know that that's a crime. Mm, That is fair. So we should assume that it is as fair as what goes on in Grand Theft Auto. So,
1: Tibbs and Harvey as we discuss the romance as we discuss romance Tibbs and Harvey are in jail and of course Harvey is racist and mean to Tibbs but then Tibbs is like I want to help you because I know you didn't do it and then Harvey's like oh yes please
0: and they're chatting and among other things Harvey talks about how he's had run-ins with Officer Sam Wood before because he's been taking this lady (laughs) This girl, <laughs> this girl who likes standing naked in the window on dates up to the point
1: and one time Wood pulled him over and told him to stop, which considering she's 16 probably should stop cuz Harvey's probably in his mid 20s at least.
0: Yeah. But it's clear that Wood is doing this out of jealousy and he's like yeah. trying to use his power as a police officer to threaten harvey into not pursuing this woman
1: i do want to point out before i forget again there is a police officer named shagbag and we just gotta just make sure that the people know yeah officer shagbag officer shagbag all right continue point three okay
0: um yeah that was it for point two um sam Wood threatened Harvey with the rest. In point number three, now, Tibbs is deeply enmeshed in this investigation, and he gets Wood as the officer who found the body. He's like, I want you to retrace the drive that you went on leading up to finding the body so I can just get a sense of it. And Wood drives for a bit and then refuses to drive past Dolores Purdy's house because he does not want a black man to see her naked.
1: So one thing I had with this movie is a lot of the white people all look very similar.
0: So at various yes, times. Yes, particularly um Dolores's brother and Ralph look very similar.
1: Yeah, so I mean we will spoil the end of this movie. Um I thought that Dolores had been Impregnated by her brother because I thought Ralph was her brother in that moment. And I got they very look very confused. similar. It's like
0: their jawline is different, is how I was able to tell. Ralph has this
1: very aggressive jaw. You don't get a great shot of Dolores. Like, At the beginning, so until later, I thought that that was Mrs. Colbert, the widow. Oh, no. Because there's only two women in the movie, and somehow I got them confused. They don't look similar, though. No, they have brown hair, and it was a a while between you see Dolores for the first time and Mrs. Colbert and then Dolores again. So I was like, was Sam sleeping with Colbert's wife and that's why he murdered him? but I was wrong there on a lot of accounts. Primarily about who you were looking at? (laughs) Yeah, it was confusing. I wasn't watching it on the TV. I was on my computer. Things get confusing. Okay. White people all look the same, apparently.
0: So, point number four. Dolores's brother brings her to the police station because she is pregnant, allegedly, with Officer Sam Wood's baby. Sam comes down our road. Just like he comes every night. Passing like a lord in that fine, big, shiny car.
1: Only this time he stops. He's got a nice face, don't you think, Chief? This is who Dolores has told Purdy knocked her up. She
0: said it was this police officer. And at the station, she tells a whole story about how Wood would drive by sometimes and one time they were looking and she came outside and then Wood invited her to go bang on the tombstones in the graveyard. It is very strange. It's because the marble is cool. And so in the of you can have cool sex on the tombstone.
1: So weird. But apparently it works for Dolores. I'm assuming that fits with Ralph's character from what we see. So yeah. she probably just swapped out the person. Here's the thing. She definitely did have sex with Sam Wood at some point, right? Probably. Because
0: Wood never pushes back on this happened.
1: That's true. So she probably did have sex with Sam Wood, but the cemetery thing really seems to mesh with what we know of Ralph.
0: Yeah. And so Sam is arrested at that point
1: because, as Dolores'
0: brother points out, she is 16, which, as you said, makes this statutory rip. I
1: thought it was interesting that Purdy knew the law that well. Well, I imagine he spends a lot of time monitoring his sister's behavior. It sounds like he probably needs to. So now we are on point five, right? Point number five. Look in her purse.
0: What's that mean? She's got $100 to pay for an abortion.
1: Listen to that. Black
0: Money she got from Ralph. You're going to listen to him? He got her to tell you that Sam Wood did it. He made a fool out of you, Purdy.
1: Tibbs has to go where Whitey can't go. So through Harvey, who he's now friends with, he gets Harvey's friend to take him to where women can get abortions illegally in town. Right,
0: they're performed by Mama Kaleba. Um, It makes sense, a black woman playing a key role in this underground economy. I wanted to shout out, Mama Kaleba is played by Bea Richards who is Oscar-nominated this year for playing Poitier's mom in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. She's such a good
1: actor. Yeah. But that is also a sign that Hollywood had, like, three black people that they were hiring. Right, which is a big problem and something Poitiers talked about a lot in his career,
0: where he was frustrated because he was aware that he played a lot of, like, perfect, idealized people. But he's also like, I'm the only black guy on screen. So I don't want the only black guy on screen to be a villain.
1: He was... is. Did he die? No, he's alive. No, he's alive. Sidney Poitier is very intelligent. Yeah. Well, he also, I should say, His Excellency, Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier KBE. Yeah. Also, ambassador for, uh, I want to say he was like the ambassador to Japan. No, no, no. Not Japan. He like was an actual ambassador.
0: Oh, wait, you're right. He is the Bahamian ambassador to Japan from 1997 to 2007. Yeah,
1: he was not just like... Given the ambassador title about, like, culture or something, which I think Barbados gave to Rihanna, he served in the diplomatic corps in Japan for 10 years. 10 years. And from 2002 to 2007, he was also
0: Bahamas ambassador to UNESCO. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. And he has a presidential medal of freedom and a knighthood. That's crazy. He's so good. Anyway, Poitier goes to Mama Kaleba to find out who has paid for Dolores' forthcoming abortion because he figures whoever had the money to do that will be the person who killed Colbert and took his money. Because the money that Harvey had on him wasn't enough to match the money that was missing. Right. And so Plotty is doing this. Dolores shows up, sees Tibbs, and runs out. Tibbs chases her out and sees her run into the arms of Ralph, the racist diner worker. And then the lynch mob shows up and they're gonna fight him, but
1: then uh, Gillespie shows up. Well, first, Poitier convinces them to look for the money, and they find out that Dolores was there to get an abortion, and Ralph was paying for it. With the money he took from Colbert. Right. And then Ralph shoots her brother, who dies and is given very little, like, screen time or emotion about his death. He's just kind of like, oh no, he died. And then I assume Ralph is arrested? I guess, yeah. He committed murder twice. Yeah, I don't know what happened to Dolores. Probably also arrested for aiding and abetting, something like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, at this point, the movie solved the murder mystery. It doesn't
1: really care what happens. No, it doesn't. Just got to get Tibbs out of town. This isn't law and order. You don't have half the episode figuring it out, and then the other half prosecuting prosecuting him. him. Yeah, this one's just law. Yeah. So that's the end of the romance, and then Tibbs leaves (laughs) town. At At what point, or
0: maybe it's already happened, will there be a movie where the tagline is all law, no order? That would be a terrible tagline. I don't get it. It would be for, like, Animal House at law school. Like a college com set at a law school.
1: It could also be about, like, how using the law can cause chaos when it's not done ethically or morally. It could be like a RoboCop sequel. Yeah, that type situation. That'd be a good tagline for RoboCop. (laughs) Well, it predates Law & Order, so. Uh, All right. I guess that phrase probably existed outside of the TV show, but I'm not too sure about
0: that. It definitely did. Because Richard Nixon used it to run for president. Fair.
1: That's not a good look for the show, then. But yeah, so Tibbs leaves town. I thought it was interesting that Gillespie carried his suitcase. That's a huge moment. Yeah. Because throughout the movie,
0: Gillespie displays his racism through the fact that he never uses Tibbs' last name or title. He always refers to him as Virgil. He always introduces him as Virgil.
1: Or just boy.
0: Right. And so the fact that at the end of the movie, he carries his suitcase is really significant. And contributes to that fade out kiss that james baldwin talked about yeah
1: because then they shake hands in the movie ends. it is a fade out kiss yeah but we also know that he's not not racist now oh he's definitely still racist oh those parts of the movie were really hard to watch the like cotton sure. scene every time he got called boy or the n-word which happens repeatedly
0: yeah although i will frankly say a lot less than i expected
1: yeah i agree with that it was a movie that used it for effect, right. It's not the hateful eight where they're just throwing it around because they can. Right. They are choosing moments where it will have the most impact. To use that word, but yeah. So, um, these questions will be interesting this time around. Do you find the romance of in the heat of the night, in the heat of the night. believable?
0: So, I guess our central thing that we have to discuss is. The 16-year-old Dolores Purdy, who is an exhibitionist who likes standing in the window and occasionally having sex with people who drive by. If we believe that, we basically believe the movie.
1: I mean, the way they have it,
0: I kind of buy into it. Because then all you have to believe is that like she went out with or had sex with at least three people that we know of, because she went out with Harvey, she probably had sex with Sam Wood, and she definitely had
1: sex with Ralph. Right. All of which feels plausible. Um, I don't know if I'm going to give it a 10, though. Why not? Because... There's so little there. Like, it feels weird. I don't know. Ralph really turns around and murders her brother fast enough where I'm like, you probably could have seen this coming. I think that's the biggest problem, is the murder of and Mr. Purdy, Ralph... who has no first name in the movie. And Ralph is incredibly creepy. Like, so creepy. Like, you have to have no standards. His yes, His smile. Like, he's so gross.
0: So you want to say a nine
1: maybe a eight or a nine
0: i'm gonna call it a nine you can call it what you want i'll
1: call it an eight ralph really freaked me out
0: he's pretty creepy so um do you think that (laughs) ralph or dolores or let's throw in the other guys harvey or sam wood is dateable um honestly harvey is probably
1: the most dateable of this group yeah that actor had to outrace a real train (laughs) that's really impressive and uh I've made myself clear on Ralph, but I think the other two are also no's. Yes, definitely. I mean, Sam
0: Wood abused his police power to threaten romantic rivals.
1: Yeah, and then Dolores is a 16-year-old girl who is definitely in need of some help. Yeah, she's exercising some pretty poor judgment. Do you think that Ralph and Dolores would stay together? Well, no. He just shot her brother, and she seemed genuinely upset about it. Yeah, it seems unlikely.
0: And I imagine he'll go to prison longer than she will. Yes. Honestly, she might be able to get away with no prison time.
1: She is a minor. Yeah.
0: I don't know. Honestly, where and when she is, her biggest prison time threat is if they decide to make a case for her trying to get an abortion.
1: Yeah, that was my main thing I was thinking about.
0: But it's basically a case of whether they decide to charge her for it. And like, in terms of witnesses,
1: she was outside. Yeah, she never actually like, asked for it. Yeah. Uh... If you did have to pick one person in the movie to date, who would you choose? The clear answer,
0: as far as I'm concerned, is Mrs. Colbert, who is the widow of the murdered man. They seem like good people. Uh, For starters, they were going to start this factory specifically as an equal opportunity employment. And not just like vaguely, but like with specific equity targets. (laughs) Like
1: specifically equal. Yeah. 50%. So that
0: seems pretty great. Yeah. She seems nice and like no nonsense
1: and not racist. Well, she wouldn't let a black man touch her still. I think that's partially racism and partially grief. Yeah. But I mean, it's, you just got to remember, like everyone's kind of racist. And in the sixties, even the good people were racist as we saw in the film. Guess who's coming to dinner?
0: Yeah, (laughs) I do. I'm also partial to Mrs. Colbert because she's played by Lee Grant, who's a really cool actress. This actually is kind of a return for her. She won an Oscar for her first screen performance in Detective Story And then not long after that was blacklisted for associations with suspected communists. And spent like 12 years unable to get work in movies. And this is kind of her coming back into
1: things. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. I'm basically leaning towards Tibbs. I know I don't usually choose the lead character, but I think Tibbs is clearly the best person in the movie. Yeah, he's great. Sidney Poitier looks good in a suit. He just looks so good. Always. Uh, So a lot of movies we cover are adapted to stage musicals. And I have to know, do you think that there should be an In the Heat of the Night night. musical? So here's the thing.
0: I think Quincy Jones has written some incredible music for this movie, but under no circumstances should it be a musical. (laughs) Murder mystery musicals just don't appeal to me in any way. It's just like, this will not be improved by having people sing about their feelings.
1: No, in no way would this be better as a musical, let alone good as a musical. It would be actively quite bad. But you would get to hear a
0: rousing full chorus of In the Heat of the Night. In the heat
1: of the night.
0: At some point. Like, there's probably a point early on where it's sung by just one person, but there's a reprise later where lots of people sing that
1: theme. That is true, but also Ray Charles has already sung it. So it's like, Are you going to get better? Probably not. Probably not. All right. I think that's about it for um, In the Heat of the Night. In the heat of the night. Next week,
0: and I did not plan this, but here we are, we are doing another movie written by the incredibly named Sterling Siliphant, because we're taking a look at the 70s disaster movie, The Towering Inferno.
1: I have no idea what this movie is about, except that there is probably a large fire in it. Yeah, that is I bet a little tower. It. It's in a it's in a skyscraper, Mark. Like the towering inferno. Clever. So clever. But you know what else happens in a tower? A heist. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> That hit film everyone watched, Tower Heist.
0: That movie like has an interesting place in history despite being directed by a serial sexual harasser because the studio was going to release it in theaters and on demand at the same time and the theater owners like rebelled and Tower Heist had to back down. So it was like the proto-Trolls World Tour. Who directed it? It's a Brett Ratner picture. Oh. Uh. Yeah gross we've started and ended with movies that mark didn't know the director matilda on one end tower heist on the other
1: hey i never claimed to know every director i didn't say you did i
0: just think it's interesting we've wound up this way on both ends
1: full circle and until next week you can follow the show on facebook and twitter at love the love pod and you can always email us questions or movie suggestions at love the love pod at gmail.com make sure to rate review and subscribe especially on apple podcasts to help other people find the show all right will last question What is the best piece of dating advice we got from In the Heat of the Night? In the heat of the night.
0: Well, we got a lot to take out here. And I think the most important piece of advice is to be open to the interests of your partner. Just like how all of the people who are trying to sleep with Dolores are open to her exhibitionism.
1: I just like can't think of any positive advice. The best advice this movie gives you is if you date a 16-year-old you will end up in jail. That's good advice. That's <laughs> good right. and important advice. <laughs> that is good advice. And until next time, I'm gay and I'm a ginger.
0: So between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance.
1: Bye. Bye.